I thank you, Pastor Mark, for that prayer of supplication. And as you're turning in your Bibles to Second Peter, as we continue this series of messages, irregardless of what the weather is next Sunday, if it's a beautiful, sunny day, which I hope it will be, we're still going to have showers here, at least a shower here at the church. And I just want to make sure everybody remembers. Yes, we're going to be celebrating with Miss Whitney and uh, Jeffrey as the wedding bells will be ringing very soon in June. But we have a wedding shower here at the church next Sunday right after the worship gathering. And um, we'll be having our uh, covered dish luncheon to go along with that. So bring plenty of food and, and gifts and we'll just have a great time of celebration. So just want to make sure that that was registered on your calendar. You know, the Apostle Peter in his first epistle helped us to know and to appreciate the fact that we are as God's children, as followers of Christ. We are, we are children of God. We are citizens of heaven. One of the greatest challenges facing us in this contemporary world in which we live is realizing we must rise above the entanglements of our earthly residency in order that we might embrace our citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. This is a challenge that, that confronts every one of us every day. We're constantly being bombarded with other obligations and commitments and priorities that would shift our, our focus and our priority away from who we are. As citizens of the kingdom of God. As God's people. And so this kind of follows along even as we move into 2 Peter uh, today. And as we look at the, as we begin this series in the shorter version of Peter's second epistle here, uh, shorter than 1 Peter, I, I, th I thought it would be good for us just to visit a few things that, that might help us to understand the second epistle, uh, Second Peter. Uh, commentaries and scholars say that Second Peter is, is, is Peter's swan song, if you will. Uh, very much like Second Timothy was Paul's swan song. In other words, these are letters written by these two giants of the faith just prior to their departure from this earth and from their departure from their earthly ministry. And so there's, there are powerful words given to the early church by these men of God that have been so powerfully and, and magnificently used in their ministry to the early church. So uh, as we look at that, that's, that's in, in our mind. As we think about the authorship of the second epistle, it seems almost reasonable to say, well, it's Simon Peter's right there in black and white, and, and this is his second letter, so why not? We'll talk about that in just a minute. The date of the, the writing of the letter, most scholars say this would probably be somewhere around 67, 68 AD. Uh, certainly had to be written before um, uh, or during 68 AD because that was the year that uh, the deranged and egocentric and uh, imbalanced Roman Emperor Nero died. And we know from church history and tradition that Peter was indeed martyred uh, as, a, as a result of Nero's persecution. In fact, we know according to John chapter 21 that Peter, like Christ, was crucified, except church tradition tells us that Peter, at his request, humbly requested that he be crucified upside down. And so the writing of the letter, Peter would have had to have written this before 68 AD. The place of the writing of the letter more than likely was a Roman prison where Peter was being held there uh, awaiting his execution 
uh, by Nero. So those are just some pertinent things there and background information. I think it's important before we launch into the letter that just in fairness that you understand that, that this is a, a highly contested letter. Probably, as Dr. John MacArthur in his commentary says, the, the second letter of Peter, the second epistle of Peter, is probably the New Testament letter that created the greatest amount of controversy of all the other New Testament letters or, or, or books. And we'll talk about that. There are critics that for, for centuries have attacked the authenticity of Second Peter on a, on a variety of range, ranges. And there are some, quote, difficult verses in this epistle, but we'll, we'll approach those later as we walk through it. But, but, you know, it's important for us to remember that, you know, as, as easily as critics accepted First Peter, in contrast, there, there's a lot of questions that they raised about Second Peter flowing right out of the gates of First Peter. So the controversy that a lot of these critics raised uh, uh, about Second Peter, for instance, uh, some of the critics say, well, there's a vast difference in the literary style between First Peter, Second Peter, and and of course, you know, if you remember, as we were closing out in First Peter, Peter acknowledged that his uh, Emmanuelis, his scribe was, uh, was Silvanius, uh, or we know him as Silas. Uh, Peter was dictating the, the letter, and, and, and Silas was, was writing it word for word, but, but still again, you know, he was injecting his own literary style to the words that Peter was given. So as we look at Second Peter, you know, scholars say that probably Peter used a different scribe, or he wrote the letter himself, which would, which would uh, explain the difference in the the literary styles between the two letters. Then, then critics look at the content. They say, but Peter was on a roll. He was, he was using 1 Peter to address, you know, the theme of, of the onset of suffering and persecution in the church. And he was seeking to prepare and equip those early churches, early Christians to face the storms of persecution that was coming against the church. Uh, and, you know, increasingly, of course, as Nero was becoming more deranged in, in his rule of Rome and beginning to focus on the, on the church and on Christians. And, and yet the theme shifts in Second Peter. But the thing that you have to understand is Peter is reading the times and he's understanding the significance and the Spirit of God is convicting his, his, his heart to address those things that are most prevalent to the church. In the first epistle, Peter was addressing an external problem, which was, of course, the ostracism and persecution facing the early church from the outside. But from the inside, now Peter's focusing on internal threats to the early church. And Peter saw the Spirit of God made him aware of the, of the increasing presence of false teachers and false preachers and heretics that were infiltrating the early church and countering some of the teachings of the apostles like Peter and James and the Apostle Paul, etc. And so he's addressing this problem, and that would be the reason why he felt the need to shift the theme. And then there are allegations about the, the actual dating of the book, you know, because some critics have said that Peter, Second Peter, tends to borrow from some of the wording of, of another New Testament epistle, a book, uh, the book of Jude. And, and so they, and knowing that Jude was written after Peter's death, some of the critics say, well, it's impossible that this letter could have been written by Peter because he's using some of the writings from Jude. But upon closer examination by the scholars, 
it, it, it's been revealed that actually Jude was borrowing from Peter's expressions. And so it's almost vice versa. And, and those, those, those accusations were actually unfounded upon closer scrutiny and examination. You know, what is interesting is as you hold the two letters to, up together, scholars will say that there's an amazing similarity in between the two books. You'll find similar expressions that Peter uses in 1 Peter and again in 2 Peter. You'll find words that are favorite words of Peter's that he uses in both. You'll find different experiences that Peter had as an apostle, a follower of Christ that he uses in both letters. So, so um, even in, with the differences that exist between the two books, scholars say there's an amazing uh, amount of similarity that would justify the book. And the most important thing is even though there were some of the church, early church fathers that were maybe uh, hesitant or slow to come on board to accept the authenticity of Second Peter, they eventually did. They eventually did as, as, as information and evidence was presented and as they debated and as they met in councils and finally the church itself uh, officially accepted the book of Second Peter into canon in the council of Laodicea in A.D. 372 and then later in the Council of Carthage in A.D. 397. So it is a canonical book of the scriptures. It is fully inspired by God and it is authentic. And so just, just to give you a little bit of that background because some people may, quite, may cause, try to cause you to question, you know, well, do you really want to base your faith on the writings of a book that has been question like that. And so we know that God has led the church to fully accept this as one of the inspired works of God. So having looked at, at the content, or looked at the background, if you will, now it's time to launch into the content. And so I want to ask you to begin reading with me there in 2 Peter chapter 1, in verse 1. And as we do, we'll see Peter's humble and reassuring greeting to the church. Now you'll notice right out of the gate there's a little bit of a difference even in the greeting. Peter addresses and identifies himself in verse 1, Simon Peter. In 1 Peter you'll notice Peter just said Peter, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here he uses his Hebrew name uh, in addition to Peter. Simon, which is a Greek variation of the Hebrew name Simeon, which you may recall was one of the sons of Jacob and one of the tribes of Israel. And, and that was Peter's official Hebrew name. And so he uses that for purposes of authentication, authenticity, there you go, to make sure that the readers of the letter understand it's really him. Because Peter knows there are false writings going on in his name. And he uses this Hebrew variation of his name to give authenticity to who he is. Scholars tell us that this letter, 2 Peter, followed basically the same mail route. I'm using that term loosely because I don't know if Rome had a mail system. But they did have a way of delivering letters. And, and so the second the second letter followed the pattern into Asia Minor to the same churches that first Peter went to. So Peter is, is, is given this sign of uh, authority and, and uh, authenticity to his, his letter, knowing that it's going to the same churches. So they will see this as a follow-up to his earlier writings to them in the previous letter. And so, you know, I think it's interesting, not only does he identify himself, but look how he identifies himself. Look at the contrast in the terminology in verse 1 when he says, Simon Peter, a servant. 
And I'll stop there because Peter saw himself, as did the other apostles. They were following suit of the Master himself. When Jesus in Matthew's gospel in chapter 20, verse 25 through 28, you know, Jesus says, you know, you see how the rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them and they exercise authority over them. He says, it is not so among you. Whoever among you wishes to be great, he says, you will be a servant. And those of you who wish to be great or, or be first, you will be a slave. Even as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Peter never forgot that evening of the Lord's Supper, the last Passover, when God's Son took a towel and wrapped it around his waist and knelt down and took a basin of water and washed the nasty feet of his disciples as one of the most classic, symbolic gestures of servanthood. Jesus says, this is who I am, this is who you are. Peter never forgot it. And brothers and sisters, we best not forget it either. We're not in this world to be served. We're not in this world to be catered to. We are in this world to serve. We are servants. We're servants of the Most High. How dare we would have an arrogant, puffed up, prideful attitude as if everybody owed us something. Without getting into politics, I think that's one of the, the undermining factors of our nation is everybody thinks that they're entitled to something you know, and everybody else owes them. Listen, as Christians, listen, nobody owes us anything. We owe it to the Lord to serve those around us in the name of the Lord as a representation. And Peter says, Simon Peter, a servant. But then in contrast, he throws his title in. He has every right to. He says, listen, I'm writing as a humble servant of Christ, but I'm writing also as one who has been given unique authority by the Son of God. I'm an apostle of the church. An official witness of the resurrection of the Son of God. I have been given divine authority to teach and to preach and to spread the gospel. And so Peter makes this declaration right away. And so as he comes into verse 1 there, Peter says to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In this humble and reassuring greeting, Peter in verse 1 is celebrating the common bond that these believers have with him in the gospel of grace. And I think it's so interesting because as we see here, uh, when Peter talks about the, to those who have obtained like precious faith, in the New American Standard Version it says a faith of the same kind as ours. Peter says the thing that, he says, sure, I'm a servant of Christ, I am an apostle, you're not. But Peter says, guess what, we are bound together by the common faith that we have in Jesus Christ. And ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, do you understand that our testimonies may vary? And they will as to when we were saved and made the decision to, to dedicate our lives to Jesus Christ and to follow us or where that may have transpired or how it may have happened in your life. But let me tell you something, irregardless of the differences of our testimonies, the thing that we have in common is the faith that God has given to us. Look at the title that Peter uses uniquely there. Speaking of, of the Lord, 
Jesus Christ. He says, this precious faith with, which, with, with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter wants to dispel any doubt in anybody's mind about the deity of Christ. He comes right out of the gate and says, Jesus Christ, He is our God and He is our Savior. He and the Father are one. As we look at verse 2, Peter goes on to highlight the value of truly knowing the Lord. And this idea of knowledge is a repeating theme that you'll see in Peter's letter. It was important to the Apostle Peter as it was to other writers of Scripture. And it should be to you and me that we truly know the Lord. Paul talked about that in, in his letter in, uh, in Philippians in chapter 3. You're, you're familiar with how Paul described the importance of his knowledge of the Lord. Listen to what Peter, uh, Paul said in Philippians 3 in verse 8. He says, But indeed, I also count all things lost, a loss, for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And Paul did. He lost everything. And he had much by the standards of the world that day. And count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. He goes down in verse 10 of that same chapter. And he says, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His suffering being conformed to His death. If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul says, you want to know what is the priority of my life? What is the priority of my life? It is to know Christ it is to experience Him. Not just to have a head knowledge, but to be able to have a correct understanding uh, of Christ and to have a right relationship. And that's what Peter is doing here in verse 2. To those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now here he's separating God and Jesus as Lord. Whereas in the previous verse he put Jesus, God in Jesus' proper title. But look what he's doing. Peter is tying together the key elements that are part of our relationship with the Lord as believers. Number one, He's saying to us that the key elements of our relationship with God begin with the faith that God gives us. Do you understand? You don't manufacture faith in the Lord. It's not a scholastic achievement. It's not something you work towards or generate on your own. Do you understand that faith, genuine, believing, saving faith comes only as a gift from God? And ladies and gentlemen, that ought to deepen our appreciation for the relationship that we're blessed to have. Do you understand? You wouldn't be a Christian if God didn't give you the faith to believe upon the Lord. Listen, God has given us His God, that God-given faith that embraces the Word of God, that helps us to understand that it is truly the Word of God inspired by the Lord that generates in you and me a genuine, rational, objective knowledge of the Lord. You won't know the Lord. You can't know the Lord unless you're in the Word of God. 
And the word of God reveals him to you. And you won't know the word of God if God doesn't give you the faith to understand that this is indeed the holy, inspired, eternal word of God. And so through our faith, we come to the word and the word reveals the Lord and helps us to understand and have a knowledge of the Lord. And so the Holy Spirit then takes that and he sweeps us into the river of God's amazing grace. And is there that we are ushering into the flow of God's unmerited favor as people of God resulting in our salvation. For by grace are you saved through faith. That not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Amen? And just to be able to call yourself a child of God. To live with the assurance that no matter what happens to you in this life. That you belong to Him. That you are a child of God. And that you have eternal life. It is a gift of God. And so he's talking about the benefits of that. He says, and knowing, having this right knowledge of God. Resulting from the faith that God has given you. He says, look there. It brings grace and peace. Grace and peace. Grace and peace. Peter wasn't interested in addition. Peter was into multiplication. Exponentially, he says, when you have the right knowledge of the Lord. And you walk daily in a personal fellowship with the Lord. He says, you're, the grace that God gives you, ladies and gentlemen, it begins to multiply in your life. It begins to grow in your life. And you become filled with the grace of God. And not only that, but there's a wonderful flow of the peace of God. And that's what Paul was saying in Romans chapter 5 when he said, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you understand? There are a lot of people walking around you, living around you and me, who are occupying this world, who are enemies of God. They are subjects and targets of the awful, eternal wrath of God. The problem is, they don't know it. But one day they will. Let me tell you something, dear friend. Before you become too prideful and puffed up, understand that before God gave you the faith to give you the knowledge, to bring you into salvation, you too were an enemy of God. You had a great target marked on you and it was the wrath of God. It was only through the precious faith that God has given you and me that God's wrath has been satisfied towards you and me through his son Jesus Christ. I don't know about you. That gets me just a little bit excited and appreciative to be a child of God. So first thing, we have to come fully by faith, accepting the person of Christ Jesus. He is indeed our God and our Savior and the precious Son of God, which brings us as we move further in the opening of this letter to verse 3 there in chapter 1, to appreciating the sufficiency of Christ's divine power. When you have a grasp, a knowledge of who the person of Christ is, oh, listen, dear friend, you have no idea of the, the vast supply of divine power that is made accessible to you and me in the person of Christ. Peter knew that firsthand. 
He knew that firsthand. He saw the resurrecting power of God worked in the life of Christ that brought him out of that grave after he had been crucified. Peter witnessed firsthand the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But not only that, even after Jesus had ascended into heaven at the right hand of God the Father and the Spirit of God poured down upon that early batch of believers there waiting and praying in Jerusalem, Peter witnessed the power of the Spirit of God coming down like tongues upon them from heaven and they all experienced the, the phenomenal power of God beginning to infuse their very spirits and their souls. Listen, when Peter went out into the streets of Jerusalem, he and John on the way to the temple, you remember in Acts chapter 3 where they encountered a lame man who had never walked and all of a sudden were, he was begging for silver and gold. Do you remember what Peter said there in Acts chapter 3 and verse 6? He says, silver and gold, I don't have it. Like a preacher, I'm broke. But he says, but let me tell you something. I've got something better in the name of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you something. You don't say that unless you know it has power. He said, in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. Let me tell you something. That man could not have imagined that morning that he was going to be walking. But let me tell you something. He hadn't met Christ. He hadn't met the man of God. He hadn't experienced the power of God. And quite honestly, Peter hadn't either. <laughs> That's faith. But the Spirit of God, using the power of God, enabled him to work the miracle that it did. Let me tell you something. The genuine believer has access to unlimited power. Not to show off. Not to draw attention to ourselves. Not to create some ecstatic emotional experience that's basically you know, propped up there. You know, all these types of things that, that I'm afraid that contaminate the church today. No, I'm talking about genuine, divine Holy Spirit power under the control of the Spirit of God that does not conflict the Word of God. Listen to what Peter says. As His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue. Peter is talking about how we have access to this unlimited power. Peter understood this as I said. And that power begins with our salvation. You and I experience the wonderful power of God that secures our salvation for eternity. Let me say that again. You and I experience the wonderful power of God through Christ that secures our salvation for eternity. Do we have to be reminded over and over? And I don't know how these people that somehow come up with this false idea that you can lose your salvation. I'm scratching my head and said, what in the world? And as my grandson Asher would say from something that's puzzling, what in the world? How can you claim that you can lose your salvation that is given by the power of God when Jesus Christ, the good shepherd, told his disciples there in John chapter 10... In verse 28, he says, and he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. And if that wasn't good enough, if that wasn't convincing enough, Jesus goes on and he calls in backup and he starts talking about his father. He says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father, we are one. 
We have the assurance of the power of Christ not only to bring salvation into our lives, ladies and gentlemen, for which I'm eternally grateful, but let me tell you something, that same divine power will secure your salvation and, and bring you all the way into the presence of God no matter what your circumstances may be. In 1 John chapter 5, the Apostle John in that wonderful epistle, he says this, He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things, he says, I have written unto you who believe upon the name of the Son of God that you may know. He didn't say so that you can speculate or debate or wonder. He says, I'm writing these things to you. If you have the Son by faith and the right knowledge, then he says, if you have the Son, you have eternal life. If you don't have the Son, you don't have eternal life. These things, he says, we're writing unto you who believe upon the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Have eternal life. It's not to be taken away from you. And that you may continue believing upon the name of the Son of God. But praise God, not only does the power of Christ that abides in us secure our salvation for eternity, we know that this indwelling power sustains our sanctification. I know we're talking about justification and sanctification, and I know some of those cations, all you want to think about is vacation, right? But the idea is, it's, it's our privilege and our responsibility to grow in Christ, to develop in Christ, to become more like Him. And we're set apart God didn't just save us to put us on a trophy shelf. Now one day we will be trophies of such in heaven when the angels and all the heavenly hosts are looking at us, the redeemed there, and they're saying, my goodness, I just can't imagine how God could do such a, an amazing work in such a knucklehead sinner like Charlie Martin. Look at him over there praising the Lord in his glorified body. And they'll just, they'll praise God. They won't praise me, they'll praise God. Look what an amazing God he is. But God didn't set us on the shelf just so we could be some kind of a trophy down here on earth. God set us apart from the world that we might be the people of God. That we might live a life that represents the holiness and the godliness and the right righteousness of God. If you blend in with the world, if everybody in the world likes you, if all your secular friends have no problem with your lifestyle and what you believe, then you need to get back in the word of God and ask yourself, am I truly saved? Because a child of God is going to be different from the world. Because we've been set apart and sanctified. And not only does God save us and put us on this path of sanctification, but His power will sustain us. It can be a daunting thing. It can be an intimidating fact to be saved. And now to hear, hear the preacher or missionary say to you, now, now go live like a child of God. What? Do you know how many temptations are out there? Do you know how the devil's working? Do you know how strong my flesh is? Do you know how many sinful friends I have? And you want me to live like a child? No, not in your own power. It's impossible. You can't live the sanctified life in a secular mindset. You have to live the sanctified life absolutely dependent upon the power of Christ. The same power that saves you is the same power that will sustain you as you seek to live the faithful life of Christ. I'm so thankful. I like that verse in Ephesians 3.20 where the Apostle Paul says, Now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we think and everything that we ask. According to what? According to what? The power Whose power? His power that is in us. To the glory of God, he says. In the church. 
by Christ Jesus. We, we'll be different from the world. We, we'll stand out from the world. But let me tell you why. Because we're not of the world. We must rise above the entanglements of our earthly residency in order to embrace our true identity, our true citizenship. We're not citizens of this world. We're not residents. We just live here temporarily, but we're citizens of heaven. And God enables us, empowers us to be able to do that. Let me tell you something, dear friend. If you truly have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and He is the Lord of your life and you are following obediently the teachings of His Word and you talk to Him and communicate with Him and allow Him to speak with you in prayer and you're engaged in regular gatherings of worship and serving the Lord. Listen, if Jesus is the Lord and Master of your life, let me tell you something. He will not let you down. Did you hear me? He will not. He cannot let you down. The Word of God tells us, the Apostle Paul says, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you, he's going to complete it. He's going to complete it. You will be everything that God has saved and set you apart to be. All the gifts and talents that he's given you and the purpose of your life, he will accomplish until the day of Christ Jesus. There's no excuse for Christians throwing up their hands and settling for second best and going along and compromising with the world as if this is the only way to exist. Baloney. I know y'all love it when I use those complicated Greek words. <laughs> everything that we require, everything that we require to live righteous, godly lives, He empowers us daily. Not just on Sunday. Do you understand? You don't have to come to church to get charged up. Let me tell you something. You can sit down in your prayer closet or wherever at your kitchen table. You find a place and open up the Word of God. More importantly, open up your heart to God. And let Him speak to your heart. Let Him generate within you that divine unction and power that will send you out into the world. Listen, you won't be defeated by the world. You'll find yourself being a change agent in a world that desperately needs changing. Amen? I know Pastor Chad, I think it was, was preaching from Philippians several Sundays back and he, he was preaching, expounding on Philippians 4.13 and he was correctly uh, cautioning us about misusing. Or oh, was that you, Mark? I, I get all you young preachers mixed up. But anyway, that's the prerogative of an old preacher. But anyway, but, but I was thinking he was saying that, you know, you can't just pull, uh, you know, uh, Philippians 4.13. I want to be an NBA basketball player. You know, Christ will strengthen all I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Look, Charlie, you're just too short. I'm sorry, okay? Not to mention you can't hardly dribble. But other than that, you'd be a great one. But he no, no. Here's what he's saying. Paul knew this. He says, I can do all things that God has called me to do. God has set me apart to do. That he has given me the gifts and the talents and, the, and it's his purpose. Listen, God's not going to set you on a course to represent him. And he won't give you the strength and the power to do it. Praise the Lord. As we talk about the sufficiency of Christ's divine power, we talk about the power of Christ is the result of truly knowing him. We go back to that again as we look there. As Peter is writing in verse 3 as he's talking about the importance of this. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Look what he says. Through the knowledge of him who called us by glory 
and virtue. This idea of knowledge is a theme that Peter picks up on. You've got to have the right knowledge of God. You've got to have the right understanding of who He is. You've got to have the right understanding of who you are. And listen, when he's talking about this knowledge, he's not talking about the superficial knowledge of the myriad of, of false believers out there. Jesus nailed them. Nailed them. In Matthew 7, 21. I call it one of the most ominous verses in the New Testament. There are a lot of people need to go back and examine that verse where Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of God. And let me tell you something, ladies and gentlemen. There are a lot of your family members and my family members and your friends and my friends. If you ask them, they say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. I had some kind of experience. And I, yeah, I, I go to church Easter and, and Christmas if I get a chance. And yeah, I, you know, I, I, we have a Bible somewhere in the house. Yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian. Jesus says, they won't even see the kingdom of God. I'll say, for, I'll say to them, depart from me because I never knew you. Guess what? If Jesus doesn't truly know you relationally, you never knew him. And Peter is talking about that. I got a feeling that hell will be populated with many souls who claim to know Jesus Christ. Many thinking that they knew enough about him to get them into heaven when they died. And the Bible clearly teaches that God's saving grace and His divine power are not extended to those who simply know Him superficially or know Him religiously or know Him ritually. Let me tell you something. You've got to know Him relationally. Go back in the Old Testament when the Bible talks about a person knowing someone. It's an intimate relationship. If you don't have that through faith in Jesus Christ, you don't know the Lord. And Peter's saying, it's that knowledge, it's that knowledge that gives us the power to all the things that pertain to life. But let me tell you the benefit of that knowledge. That knowledge comes through having a deep, genuine knowledge of the Lord that, that reveals to us His glory and his virtue. I think about the, the talk about the, the Apostle Peter. I, I think about that incident when Peter was out when, at the very beginning of, of, of his life with Jesus, his second encounter with the Lord Jesus. And Jesus using his boat to preach and then said, Cast out to go out and let's go fishing. Peter said, No, 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 we've been fishing all night, can't catch anything. Let's go anyway. Just humor me. All right, they go out, cast a net in an empty sea, right? That's what fishermen are thinking. There's no fish in here, but I'll just satisfy this preach and go home. Cast the net out. It was swollen to the point of bursting with fish. Now, to, to a regular person, a golfer, somebody that's limited like that, you know, pull in a load of fish like that, and they say, oh, look at that load of fish. But to a fisherman, Peter said, wait a minute, time out, time out. This is not an ordinary man standing in the boat with me. He said, depart from me, Oh Lord. You see, Peter saw through the power of Christ and the person of Christ, he saw himself in the, in the very presence of the very virtue and the glory of the Lord. 
And the same knowledge of the Lord will do that to you and me if you haven't been awed and awestruck and almost knocked off of your feet by the tremendous divine virtue and goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ and His, and His wonderful glory. And then something's missing in your relationship. But when we come to that point, and that's how salvation starts. Faith brings us to the Word. The Spirit of God takes us to the grace of God. The grace of God opens our eyes to be able to see Jesus for who He is. And let me tell you something. When you see Jesus Christ as He really is, as, as Peter described Him here, as our God and our Savior, let me tell you something. It impacts your very being. And you know you need to do something in the, in the very presence of holiness and righteousness. And that's where repentance comes in. Because let me tell you something, when we are in the presence of God in His, or Christ in His virtue and in His glory, the, the automatic response ought to be repent, which means to turn, turn from your sin, turn from your wickedness, turn from the evil influences of your life, turn from your sinful relationships, turn from your sinful habits, turn from your sinful friends, turn from anything that, that is contaminated with sin, and go towards Christ, Jesus said in Luke's Gospel, chapter 13, verse 3, unless you repent, you shall all perish. Having looked at the, and, and, and accepted the person of Christ and appreciating the power of Christ, I want to close by helping us to celebrate the myriad of divine promises that we have in Christ that are given to us as we look at verse 4. Peter goes on to say, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through the, these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world. You understand, Peter likes that word precious. It sounds a little bit out of place. Back in verse 1, he's talking about our precious faith. Here in verse 4, uh, the precious promises. You know, you don't think of a gruff, rustic, rustic kind of a fisherman going around and say, oh, that's precious. Yeah, but, but he liked the word, so more power to you, Peter. But anyway, he's talking about these promises. They're precious. They're precious. Listen, I love that old song we were singing, Standing on the Promises. Man, that took me back to my childhood. Standing on the Promises. Listen, our saving knowledge of Christ gives us access to His promises. And there are many in His Word. Paul talks about them in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. How the promises of Christ, the promises of God are given to us and secured to us in Christ. And the, and the result of our prom these promises that we have, that we bring into our lives, resulting in our spiritual transformation into the nature of God. There should be a radical change in you or me when we come to Christ. That's what 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says. If any man is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new things have come. That's what Peter's saying there. He's saying, listen, we have many wonderful, precious promises that are given to us that through these, just having the promises, let me tell you something, you go back and the promises are countless almost in the scriptures from the Old Testament to the New Testament. God's promises that apply to us, we can claim, but all of God's promises are true and they should have a transforming effect upon our lives. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 12 when he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable unto God. For this is our reasonable service. 
And he says, stop being conformed to the world. Stop trying to fit in with the world, but instead be ye transformed by the renewal of your mind. Let the power of Christ, the promises of Christ, transform us. And the result of it is we become more and more and more like him. I know we have the promise that we looked at it a couple of Sundays ago in 1 John chapter, uh, 1 John chapter, uh, verse John 3, uh, verses 2 and 3, when John said, one day we'll see him, and guess what? We'll be like him. That's all right by me. We'll see him, and we will be like him. But in the meantime, daily, we are seeking to be transformed more and more. As Paul, as Paul talked about in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, we should be working out our salvation daily, applying the truths of God's Word, the promises of God, God's Word, and we respectfully obeying the teachings of the Lord. And what happens is through the sanctification process, we're not the Christian we were. We're better. We're more like Christ. We're not like our old sinful self. Next year, you should be a better Christian than you are this year because you're growing and maturing and becoming more and more like Christ so that when the, eventually you step over into glory and you're in the face of the Lord, there's not had to be a total makeover. You will, there will be some improvements, but at least you will have been on your way. Some people are going to get to heaven and look at themselves and be absolutely shocked. I would say have a heart attack, but they'll be in the glorified bodies. <clears throat> Why? Why? The person of Christ and the power of Christ and the promises of Christ. It's all for God's glory. It's all for the glory of God. Our very purpose to be on this earth and God through great men of faith and these holy inspired words help us to see just how it works in our lives. I ask you, are you on your way? Spiritually, are you growing in Christ-likeness and maturing for the glory of God? Can you say you are rising above the entanglements of this earthly residency and every day seeking to grasp a hold of your citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. Are you living more like a citizen of the earth? Or are you living more like a citizen of heaven? What a, what a wonderful, wonderful blessing.